I want you to take a moment and think about the concept of trust. A lot of times, trust is based on experience. When you go to a restaurant you really like and you order your favorite dish, you trust that the ingredients they use aren't outdated or spoiled. This is an easy thing because you've done it hundreds of times before at lots of different restaurants. When I need to have some work done on my car, I'm fortunate to have a mechanic who I can trust. I need to know that the repair was done properly, but also that the car is safe to drive when I get it back. And one of the places where we all have to place our trust is in our healthcare professionals. Whether you're at the doctor for an annual checkup or in the emergency room for something more serious, you have to trust that the doctors and nurses and the other medical people know what they're doing. My guest today is Ashley. She went to the hospital one day because she was about to give birth to her first child. She and her husband, Alden, were very excited about becoming parents. And when things started happening that were outside the norm, they trusted that the people in charge could figure it out. That's not what happened. Real people in unreal situations. There is a man standing in front of me in my bedroom. My friend has been shot. I'm in the literally inside the river and I'm inside my car. He had told me multiple times that he was going to set himself on fire. If you say my name or try to look at me, I'm going to kill you. And he was just sobbing. He said, Mom, Mom, tell me you're going to be okay. And I jumped on the hood of the car and I held on. And I looked into the garage and he was hanging from the rafters. I had somebody standing on my neck. He's better to me dead. I want him dead. I'm Scott Johnson, and this is What Was That Like? Hey, it's Scott, and guess what? You're about to hear an ad, and that's both good and bad. It's good because ads are what make it possible for me to keep bringing you these episodes, and it's bad because, well, maybe you don't like listening to ads, and I get that. And the good news is you don't have to. When you sign up to support the show, you get every single episode without any ads. Plus, you get all the bonus episodes. Yeah, did you know there are actually bonus episodes? And you can try it all for free just to see what it's like. If you're on an iPhone, just go to the What Was That Like podcast and at the top, click on Try Free and you're in. On Android, just go to whatwasthatlike.com plus and try it out completely free. Once you've had the ad-free experience, you'll see why hundreds of other listeners are already doing it. But for now, here's another ad, and then on with today's episode. Was this pregnancy planned, or was it kind of a surprise? No, it was very much planned. Uh, my husband, Alden, and I had gone to a baby shower for his best friend, and uh, it was there that we kind of decided, you know, maybe we should do this too. And so I went home that night and threw out my birth control pills and we started, we started trying and I didn't, um, I wasn't planning on having her when I did, it just kind of worked out, you know, the way it did. We managed to get pregnant 
pretty quickly. We were kind of expecting it to take a little bit longer because coming off of hormonal birth control, it can sometimes do some wacky things. But yeah, it just turned out that within the second month, we were pregnant. Was there anything unusual about the pregnancy? Nothing at all was unusual. It was a really amazing pregnancy. Um, I didn't have any morning sickness. I had a little bit of discomfort towards the end, just regular pregnancy aches and pains. But overall, it really was like a perfect pregnancy. And did you know the sex ahead of time? Yeah, we did. As soon as we hit that 20-week mark and we were able to get the ultrasound to find out the gender, we did. I know some people like to be surprised, but... Nope, I want... You didn't want that surprise. I wanted to know, and I would have found out sooner if I could have. Okay. <laughs> Had you decided on a name? We did. Um, and I don't know, this, this name just kind of came to me in a dream. And we went with it. Uh, Alden liked it. And so we decided on Autumn, first name, middle name Marie. So Autumn Marie is her name. And knowing that it's going to be a girl, you, I assume, were able to decorate and what, what was involved with that? I went a little overboard. You know, it was our first. I decided on cloth diapers. And by the time, you know, the birth came around, I had amassed well over a hundred cloth diapers. We had our stroller picked out. We had the nursery painted and set up. And my mother had repurposed this beautiful dresser for her. It was pink and it was white. And Alden had done some really unique paintings on the wall. Um, it was just, it was perfect. It was perfect nursery for a little girl. Alden is your husband, it, so he's yes. an artist? He's not. Well, he likes to think he is sometimes, but um, <laughs> no, he just got, he got a little bit creative um, because her name is Autumn. He had drawn like some falling leaves actually on the wall. Th this was your first pregnancy. Were you nervous about anything about how it m might go since you'd never experienced it before? I was. Um, but at the same time, I was pretty confident that it was all going to go according to plan. I, I think I was maybe a little bit overconfident. I mean, I didn't do any childbirth prep. Um, I had decided to go with a midwife um, to get a little bit more of like a natural birth experience, although we had still decided to birth in the hospital with the midwife. You know, we had the opportunity to get a doula on a sliding scale and decided decided not to. I didn't think I would need the support of a doula. And so, yeah, I, I just went into the pregnancy and into the birth feeling like really confident and like I had this and it was all going to go according to plan. Are you an optimist by nature? I think so. Maybe a little bit too much. Yeah, maybe a little bit too much. Where were you when you went into labor? I was actually, I'd just come home from seeing a friend. Um, I had dropped him off at the subway station and I drove home and I just started to feel a little bit of uh, contraction pain. And that was on a Thursday night. And it continued throughout the night. It wasn't too bad. I was able to sleep. But by the morning, I knew that, you know, the birth was was starting to happen. Having said that, though, I did 
send Alden to work that morning. I just knew that it was our first and it was probably going to be a while before it was actually time. Was he okay going to work knowing that you're about to go into labor? He was okay with it. Yeah, he was on board with that. I knew it was going to be a long time. It was still early labor. And I mean, that morning, I actually went to Costco and just kind of walked around, picked up some food, like some pre-made meals. You know, I had a few contractions while I was there, but I was able to walk and talk through them and they weren't happening very often. So uh, by that afternoon, things were starting to pick up a little bit. And I had actually, um, I had actually started to bleed quite a bit. And so I called my midwife and I explained what was happening. And she said, well, why don't you come in? I'm here at the hospital now. Why don't you come in and we'll just see what's going on. So I drove myself to the hospital in labor in rush hour traffic in Toronto um, and this this hospital is not at all close to to me. We had probably at least two hospitals that were closer to us. And we had picked this hospital because it was, at the time, the only one in the entire Toronto area that allowed for water birth. The other hospitals, you were able to labor in the water, but you weren't allowed to actually give birth in the water. So I had chosen this hospital because I wanted to try giving birth in the water. So it was about a good 30, 40 minute drive away from me. And I, I got there, it probably took me an hour in traffic. And Alden met me there. And my mother also met me there. And they hooked me up to the monitors and triage. And there was definitely some concern. Um, her heart was decelling. And it just wasn't, it wasn't what they like to see. Um, they, my midwife did consult with the OB that was on call and they said, well, why don't you, you know, let's try this. Let's get you something to eat because it had been quite a while since I had eaten something and then we'll monitor you for another hour and we'll see what happens. And if we don't see an improvement, then we're going to have to talk about induction happening tonight. So being very Canadian, I got something from Tim Hortons in the hospital lobby. It was all sugar. I had that to eat and they monitored me for another hour and things looked good. So they said, okay, well, you still have the option for induction if you want it, or you can go home and continue to labor at home because it was still too early to be admitted. So I made the decision to go home. We went home. I got home about eight, nine o'clock at night and tried to sleep. Couldn't sleep because things were starting to pick up. I ended up in the bath at one point and uh, it was around two or three o'clock in the morning when I said to Alden, um, I think it's time to go in because this is just getting to be a little bit, this is getting to be a little bit too much now. And I don't think I can, I can handle this on my own anymore. We drove to the hospital. He called the midwife. She said, well, I'll meet you there. Called my mother. She met us there as well. At least there won't be as much traffic this time. You no, know, not at three o'clock in the morning, although it is Toronto. So you never know what you're going to run into. Um, and we get to the hospital. We get admitted. Everything looks good. And I'm, 
I'm ready for the, for the tub. And my midwife goes to get the tub ready and then realizes that it hasn't been cleaned from the last time it was used. So there's one tub on the entire labor and delivery floor and it's kind of across the hall. So it's not in the room, it's across the hall. She gets it cleaned and then she goes to fill it and realizes that there's no hot water. So water birth is now out. And it was at that point that I opted for the epidural because I was not coping well. And I, having not done any preparation at all for childbirth, because, you know, I was so confident I had it, I was not coping well. And that was my, the water birth was the only thing I was hanging my hat on to get through labor naturally. So I opted for the epidural. I slept for a couple hours, which was nice. It numbed the pain enough that I was able to sleep and get some rest. Does that, does an epidural normally do that? Cause drowsiness or cause you to sleep? It didn't cause drowsiness. It just allowed me to relax enough that I was able to sleep because I had been up all night. I wasn't able to sleep at all the night before. So around, it was around eight o'clock that I got the epidural. So we arrived to the hospital around four Um, So it was four hours before I got the epidural. And then I just, I slept. I slept until one or two o'clock in the afternoon. You were so tired that even the excitement of giving birth wasn't enough to keep you awake. I was just so tired. And, And when I say sleep, it's in a hospital. It's not really like you're kind of, you're in and you're out. And I remember at one point, you know, looking over at my midwife and just saying like, do you want me to get you something to eat? Or do you want Alden to get you something to eat? Cause she had also been up all night as well. Everybody was very tired. Two o'clock in the afternoon rolled around on that Saturday and it was time to push. I was ready. And what had happened was at some point my water had broken and there had been some aconium staining in the water, which is fairly common, um, but it is sometimes cause for concern. So meconium is baby's, it's basically the baby's first poop. Sometimes when babies are stressed or just because they might poop before they're, they're born And as a matter of protocol, my midwife had to call the pediatric NICU team into the room right up, right before the birth, just in case there was any concerns post-birth, they would be there to kind of take care of things. Or that was, that was the thought anyway. I pushed for about an hour and I remember my midwife saying to me, just before you're ready to give birth, I'm going to call the pediatric team in. And so I was just, I was waiting for that moment because I knew as soon as she called them and as soon as they walked in the door, like I was going to give birth. And that hour was one of the most challenging hours physically and emotionally because the epidural had worn off and I could feel everything. And that shit hurts. Like it's, it's next level. And I remember at one point, I think I almost kicked my midwife in the face. She was trying to massage something and it just hurt. And I just, 
I said, if you don't stop that, I'm going to, I'm literally going to kick you and I'm going to be sorry later, but I'm not going to be sorry now. It was quite the experience. Can they not give you a second epidural? I was pressing that damn button. With the epidural, there is a little button that you get. And if you need a top up, you can press this button and it will increase the dose momentarily. And I was pressing that button and it wasn't, it wasn't hitting anything. It was literally like it had just, it had just stopped working. So I did, I felt everything. Autumn was, um, she was finally born. And I remember saying, thank fucking God, I'm never doing this again. Because that was the hardest thing that I had ever done up, up to that point. When she was born, she, she came out and the midwife kind of held her up. And um, she cried momentarily and the midwife put her on my chest and she was looking around and it wasn't very long before there was just some concern that she wasn't crying enough or she wasn't pinking up enough. They like to say she was a little bit, she was a little bit gray and blue still. So she wasn't getting the oxygen circulation that they wanted to see. And so they, they, being the pediatric team, took her over to the warmer, which was on the other side of the room, and they were just going to give her some oxygen and see if they could get her to respond the way that they wanted her to respond. And this is all still in the delivery room? This is all still in the delivery room, yep. At this point, I'm probably delivering the placenta. I don't remember doing that at all. And at some point, they realized that it was possible the oxygen machine on the wall wasn't working properly. So they decided to take her to the NICU. Now I had to stay behind. Obviously I was, you know, post, this is like maybe 10 minutes post childbirth. I still had to get cleaned up and stitched up and all that stuff. So Alden went with her. Alden went with Autumn to the NICU so they took her to the NICU, yeah, I mean, and I was right behind them. Ashley's husband, Alden. I think there was a few um, mothers there and babies were there. It was just one open room, like no privacy, nothing, no section off anything. There was just like one open room with everyone seeing everything that was taking place. They put her on a table and they um, trying to put a tube insert a tube inside of her throat. I guess they were trying to figure out if there was something blocking her area, like meconium or something. I think that was what they tried to figure out if there was like meconium. When that came up empty, instantly, they went into a panic. They were basically, to me, they were saying to themselves, what now, right? There was no meconium. So what is, what's going to be next? Nothing was happening, basically. Everything was just moving so slow. They tried to take blood and run tests. She was hooked up to several um, machines. I have no clue what they were for or what they were doing, basically. It was just all these wires running from her to these various machines. It seems like, to be honest, the professionalism of these nurses and doctors were just lacking. Because to me, it's like it's the first time they actually seen something like this. Like they have never came across something like this before. Like they don't know what they were doing. I'm assuming that they 
didn't know what they're doing based on my experience and what I saw. It seems like the level up and there was just chaos. There's a lot of chaos. They were running back and forth. You know, there's even one point in time where they asked for a bag of blood and one of the nurse spilled the blood onto the chair. I'm like, this is in my mind, all I was just saying is like, please just save my daughter. I was saying to them, please save my daughter. Please save my daughter. I got cleaned up and and I'm just waiting like for somebody to come back and tell me what's going on. And it was probably half an hour after they had gone that the midwife who was kind of taking care of, of Autumn. So what typically happens in Ontario is there's a midwife watching that's kind of like taking care of mom or the birthing person. And then there's a midwife that comes in at the end, just before birth, that will take care of the baby. So you've got two midwives, one for each. And at the time, I had also had a student midwife. So I was lucky enough to have three midwives at my birth. So I had my primary one, the student midwife, and then the midwife that came for the baby. And so the midwife that was meant for Autumn had gone with her and Alden to the NICU. And it was about half an hour after they had gone that she came back and she just kind of said, you know, we're not really sure what's going on, but I wanted to come give you an update. And um, they are calling the sick kids ambulatory team to come to the hospital to check her out and possibly transfer her. I don't know how many other people do this, but I like to plan my weekly meals. Maybe I'm just weird, but I like quick and easy. That's just one of the benefits you can get with Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com slash what or enter code what before checkout to get 50% off your first week. One of the dishes I recently had was the Green Goddess Falafel Bowl. Oh, I loved it. The falafel was seasoned perfectly, and I love how crispy it is on the outside, but really moist on the inside. It's a signature dish of Enat Admoni. She's known around the world as a chef. You've probably seen her on TV. And her dishes are made right here in Florida. So I'm supporting local business, and I love that. And the convenience of Cook Unity is crazy. I mean, I've got podcast episodes to produce. I don't have time for cooking. These meals are delivered fully cooked. So when it's time to eat, I pick a meal based on my mood for that day. I heat it for a few minutes and enjoy. The menus are updated every week, so there's always something new to try. You can choose from over 350 meals based on your dietary needs or taste preferences, or go wild and have Cook Unity pick for you, because every meal is just amazing. Make the best meal plan ever with the convenience, chef-level quality, and endless variety of Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com what, or enter code what before checkout for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using code WHAT or going to cookunity.com slash WHAT. Something I've been recently making a deliberate effort with is to read more. There are lots of books I want to read, and I try to read every day, even if it's just a few pages. That little bit each day adds up, and it can make a big difference. It's like taking care of your gut. Even though it's not big, it supports the health of your whole body. Seeds DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic benefits not just your gut and your heart, which aren't outwardly visible, but your skin too, which you can see. Every morning it's the same thing. Two capsules of Seed DSO-1. And sometimes I wonder, is it normal to feel this great? 
It helps support digestive health with optimal gut bacteria levels. And thankfully, that's all backed up by science. And all the supporting data is on their website. If you're trying to avoid sugar, soy, peanuts, or gluten, you're good to go. And I was reading the literature and I thought, you had me at vegan because it's that too. And if you have kids, DSO-1 is the first multi-strain symbiotic shown to be tolerable and health-promoting in a cohort of children aged 3 to 17. And you can use this promo code to give it a try. Trust your gut with Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. Go to seed.com what and use code 25what to get 25% off your first month. That's 25% off your first month of Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic at seed.com slash what, code 25what. They put me in a wheelchair because as a matter of protocol, I wasn't allowed to walk, even though by that time the epidural had completely worn off and I was able to, to stand and to walk and all that, all that good stuff. So they wheeled me down to the NICU. It was... It was just chaos in there. She, Autumn, was on the warmer under this big light, and the pediatric doctor was kind of managing things, and there were nurses that were running around and doing different things, and they just kind of set me there, and Alden was there standing. We just waited for the for the sick kids team to get there it felt like forever and it was it was awful because it was pretty clear that there was something wrong and the team who is looking after her they didn't know how to manage it they didn't know what to do they didn't know what was wrong. And when the sick kids team got there, they came in the room, there were two of them. The entire energy changed. It became much more calm. It felt like somebody was in control. Did that lower your level of concern? It did. It did. I mean, I was... I was thinking, okay, well, they're here now, so they're going to stabilize her, whatever they need to do. And in my head, I'm thinking about the logistics of going to the sick kids hospital. Who's going to drive the truck there? Will I go in the ambulance or will Alden? Do I have to stay at this hospital for any other reason? Can I just leave with her? You know, I have to call my, my father and my sisters and... You know, I was going through all of the logistical things in my head. And then my midwife asked the sick kids lead, can mom and dad come up and, you know, see her? And she said yes. And so we we went over and I kind of got to touch touch her and just be closer to her. And it was at that point, um, the sick kids lead had been on the phone with the doctors down at, at sick kids hospital. And she got off the phone. She turned around and she 
She said, we don't think she's going to make it. And to say I was shocked would be, it would be an understatement because nowhere, nowhere in the entire scenarios that I had run through in my head was that an outcome. But I came to find out after the fact that, you know, by the time I got to the NICU, which was about an hour after she had been born, by the time I got there, it was already too late. Um, She had lost too much oxygen to her brain. Um, She had gone into cardiac arrest and there was just no coming back from it. So they were keeping her alive, um, but she was no longer there. She was brain dead. Is this a direct result of the oxygen in the delivery room not working properly? I don't have an answer for that. I, I don't know. You can go without oxygen to your brain for, I think it's six minutes before you start to, your brain starts to deteriorate. So she had obviously been without oxygen for longer than that. Wow. And so you and Alden are there and you get this news. I don't even, I can't even imagine how you would react to that. Luckily for me, I was still sitting in this wheelchair. I felt like the floor just kind of opened up and somehow I, I kept breathing and living, which at the time was just like, how can you say to me that my child is going to die and yet I still have to live. Alden unfortunately was not sitting when we got the news and I think the shock of it just, um, it put him on the floor. He he passed out. Instantly, something came over me, and I fell to the ground. I just collapsed onto the ground because in my mind, I'm like, I can't lose my daughter. I, I actually cannot lose my daughter. They called for a cold blue. At the time, I don't know what I, I didn't know what a cold blue was. They called for a cold blue. By the time um, the, the nurses and doctors got there, I was already. I was up and I, I was shaking. I was so nervous. I was shaking. I had to leave the room. I was still facing the sick kids lead and Alden was behind me, passed out on the floor. And I remember saying to the sick kids lead, can you please turn me around? Because I'm still in this damn wheelchair. And then at some point, somebody wheeled me out of the room. and. I ended up in the hall and the intercom is going off across the entire hospital, code blue to NICU, code blue to NICU. And then people start coming out of nowhere. They're running towards the NICU with these, this equipment. And all I could think about was I just need to get back to Alden. Like, how did I end up in the fucking hall? And being the good Canadian, I I stayed in my wheelchair and I just, um, I just tried to frantically like wheel myself 
back into the NICU. And of course, the door that I had come out through locked from the inside. So I couldn't just go straight back to him. I had to go all the way around to the other door, back through the NICU, back past all the other families that were in the NICU with their very sick babies, only to find by the time I got back to where Alden was that he was up and he was looking for me. So we went back to our room and tried to collect ourselves. Is this back to the delivery room? Yeah, back to our delivery room. Yep. And I remember my midwife coming in at one point with some resources, things you don't think you need to think about, whether to get an autopsy, um, funeral arrangements, stuff like that. And I remember saying to her, like, what, what am I supposed to do? My milk is going to come in and I don't have a baby to feed. Alden was ready to leave. I think he had just the, the shock of everything and the trauma because he had also witnessed everything in the NICU. Everything that I had missed, he had seen. He had been there for the entire thing. And he was ready to leave. And I, I also remember my mother Thank, thank God she was there. She turned to him and she said, Ashley can't leave yet. Autumn's not, you know, Autumn's not dead yet. Ashley needs to say goodbye. So I went back to the NICU with my mother. And by that time, my father was there. And I went back with my parents and Alden stayed Alden stayed behind in the hallway with my stepfather and my stepmother. And thank God that they were there. I could not bear to see my daughter there hooked up to this machine. And she was basically there. She was like, she's gasping for air. She was trying to breathe, but she could not. And she was just gasping for air. And I, I saw her, her chest going up and down so frantically. I'm like, it's like she cannot. She wants to take in the breath, but she cannot hold it in and she can't to release it she was us and i could not bear the sight of that i could not just um, um stood there and watch my daughter struggling to breathe and that was one of the hardest thing i've ever gone through in my life losing someone that is so close to you even though i didn't know her like that but she was a part of me something that we created and to lose her in that uh, fashion and that way it was just so sad. It was heartbroken for me. I was led into what was essentially like a little storage closet. Um, right, right off the NICU, there was like a table like you would find in a boardroom and a book, a bookcase with some medical books and a couple chairs and by that time, the doctor from Sick Kids had arrived. He brought Autumn to me. She was wrapped up in a blanket, and she still had the the little like catheter thing hanging out of her her mouth or the intubation. They handed her to me, and he said, "You know, you can expect to." hear a few little gasps or sighs 
before she passes. And then I just, I just held her. And uh, my mother held her and my father held her. And then, and then she passed in my arms. I don't, I don't know exactly when. I just know that at, you know, 7.05 PM on that Saturday, I said to the, the pediatric doctor, I think she's gone now. And she came over with her um, stethoscope and checked and said, yes, yes, she is. So I think I held her for a little bit longer, but um, she was starting to change color. So I gave her back to my midwife and my midwife said, are you sure you don't want more time with her? And I said, I don't want to remember it like this. And I gave her back and I went into the hallway and Alden was there. We packed up our stuff and we went home. That was, um, that was surreal leaving the hospital. You don't expect to leave the hospital empty handed. And this was a pretty small hospital. It was very quiet. It was almost eerily quiet leaving. You know, you get in the car and I remember trying not to look in the back seat because that's where the car seat was. And of course, there's no baby in the car seat. This was how long of a drive? It was a good 30 minutes, even, you know, at night, no traffic. It was a good 30 minute drive. How do you talk or what was the conversation like between you and Alden on that ride home? I couldn't tell you. I don't remember if we talked at all. There's nothing to say. Yeah. Yeah, I I really don't remember. So we get home and, you know, the first thing that we see as, as we come in the door is the baby swing, which was already set up in the living room. Um, so go upstairs and I had set the playpen up beside our bed because that's where she was supposed to sleep. So walk in the bedroom and it's the first thing I see, I think it was at that point that I lost it. Uh, like really lost it. And I remember Alden just grabbing that playpen and literally just throwing it into the nursery and closing the door. And that door, that door stayed closed for months. I don't know how the swing got in there. I don't know at what point that happened. All the baby stuff in the house made its way into that nursery and the door just stayed closed. I had a shower then we we got into bed and there's no there's no like manual on what you're supposed to do after your child dies so we just laid there and we watched we watched a movie we watched scream although i don't think we, either of us really watched it it was just on at some point the coroner called we had just missed him at the hospital so it was just again matter of protocol coroner is called to come interview everybody and he called and just asked you know the standard questions about pregnancy did i smoke um 
stuff like that that I drank during the pregnancy, all know. And we had opted to do the autopsy because we we wanted to know why this had happened. Because it made no sense. It like it literally made no sense. It was a picture perfect pregnancy, you know, standard birth. There was just there was no reason. None of it made any sense. Yeah, when you think of the term complications in childbirth, you didn't have any complications. No. Other than the meconium, but that's that's fairly routine, isn't it? It is fairly common, and I had also consulted with two OBs during my pregnancy because I I have epilepsy or yeah, I have epilepsy and uh, my midwife had never taken on a patient that had epilepsy before. So just to be safe, um, she had consulted with two OBs, one, one OB and one maternal fetal medicine specialist. So I had good care. I had amazing care throughout my pregnancy. Yeah, so we didn't know what had happened. So we opted to do the autopsy, even though we were told there's a good chance you won't ever have a reason like you won't ever know um and it could take a year or longer to get the results back why so long i think part of it is um they have to do toxicology but um, i don't know if that really should take longer than a few weeks or months yeah a year seems excessively long mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what we were told. So that's that's what we were expecting. Did the autopsy reveal anything? The autopsy did suggest that at some point prior to her birth, she had lost oxygen, uh, which had caused kind of a cascading effect after birth. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me, but I'm also, I'm not a doctor. Now, we got pregnant fairly soon after, it's about three months after, and um, I went to the best hospital in the city, I thought, and I had an amazing team. They deal with subsequent pregnancies, and so one of the things that... um, my OB did was he reviewed everything from my midwives, from the hospital, from sick kids, all of the reports he reviewed. And I remember going in for an appointment with him when I was probably six months pregnant at the time with our subsequent um, pregnancy. And he just turned to me and he said, I, I, you know, I don't think that, um, I don't think Autumn should have died. Like, I, cause whatever the issue was should have been managed better by the care team to have prevented the oxygen loss to her brain that resulted in the brain damage that she suffered. It's basically what he said to us. We decided 
absolutely, we are going to be, you know, birthing at this hospital, which has um, a level three NICU. It's, you can't get any better. Um, they deal with the sickest babies. So that if something did happen again, at least you would be in the absolute best place for any type of emergency. Did you decide to pursue legal action against the hospital? I thought about it. We thought about it. Um, we decided not to because it's incredibly difficult, um, at least in, in Ontario, to sue a doctor or a hospital. They have a lot of money and really good lawyers. If you can find a lawyer that will even take on a medical malpractice suit, it can drag on for years, for decades, and at the end of the day, you might not get anything anyway, except more trauma. <laughs> yeah, it's just dragging out, reliving the experience, and you want to get over it. Not that you ever get over it, but... No, I channeled my grief and my anger into a five-page letter that I sent to the hospital. Um, I looked up their board of directors, and I just sent this, a copy of this letter to everybody there. And I, I explained in my letter, like, this is what happened, and this is how the care we received um, really, really traumatized us. This is how you can improve. And... They listened. I will definitely give them that, that they listened. And somebody reached out to me within a couple of days of me sending the letter and um, took our, you know, recommendations into consideration. And a few months later, I got another call saying, you know, this is what they had put in place to prevent the same type of experience from happening to somebody else. So one of the big things was, there were other families in the NICU when we were there and there was just, there was no privacy. So everybody in the NICU witnessed our tragedy. And I didn't even realize it at the time I was so focused on what was happening with, with autumn, but I can't imagine how, how traumatizing that could have been for somebody who's already overwhelmed and stressed with a baby sick enough to have to be in the NICU. And then to witness this unfold. The other issue was that there was no, there was nowhere really appropriate to say goodbye. I mean, I said goodbye to my daughter in a storage closet off of the NICU. The other thing was there are services where a professional photographer will come and take photos. And we, did, we weren't offered that. So I have one photo of her that my mother took on her cell phone. And that's all we have. And, and I would give anything to have more photos of her. This just seems like such a, a wrong, her whole life ahead of her, and just ended because of people just making mistakes. Yeah, it, it came down to, it came down to incompetence. And I can say that with certainty. 
after having done a lot of, I, I, I spoke to a lot of people after the fact. I mean, I was very lucky. We had the amazing OB that we had with our subsequent, who was very experienced, a pioneer in a lot of ways in labor and delivery in the city. Um, as well, I had the opportunity to meet with the doctors from sick kids who had worked on the case, who had been on the other end of the line and who had actually come to the hospital. They assured me that there was, you know, none of the medications I was on would have caused this. Like there was, there was nothing that I had done. There was, there was just nothing that the midwives had done. And there was, it was never explicitly stated by anybody, but there was definitely a sense that there was a sense of frustration on the sick kids side by the, the level of competence that they encountered at the hospital by the pediatric team. You mentioned that you got pregnant fairly quickly after this happened. Was that intentional or? Yeah, it was intentional. I, I don't recommend it, but I just felt so empty. And there was nothing that was going to fill that void. The closest I could get was to try and have another baby. And we made that decision, even though by the time um, we were pregnant, like we still didn't have the autopsy report back. So we really didn't know if it was something that was likely to repeat or not. And um, my subsequent daughter, it just happened that we got pregnant on the same timeline just a year later. It was off by like a, a year and a week. So her due date was um, quite literally a week um, beyond what Autumn's had been. So there was that to deal with because I was basically reliving the pregnancy just a year later. How worried were you that the same thing might happen again? Extremely worried. And that's why we did things so differently. I had gone from really wanting like a natural, a natural birth with midwives. If I, if I could have birthed at home with Autumn, I would have. And I went to the opposite. I went to a high tech hospital. I was followed by a high risk team. And I was also followed by a regular OB team. So I was being followed by multiple doctors. One of the great things about this subsequent pregnancy program was that they made it much easier that when you're pregnant after a loss, it's a completely different ball game. There's so many triggers. So they try and eliminate that as much as possible. So you know, for anybody who's been pregnant, you know that every time you go in for an ultrasound and you get a different tech, you kind of have to explain everything all over again. So they would offer the same ultrasound tech for every ultrasound. And I had an ultrasound every appointment if I wanted it. I could drop in any time. If I had any concerns, they would see me. I was offered induction and I was offered um, an elective cesarean. Ultimately, I chose to have an elective cesarean before the date 
that we lost Autumn. So she was she was born at 38 weeks and six days. And I don't know, there's just something in my head that said, I, I don't want to be pregnant with this pregnancy at 38 weeks and six days. I need this baby to come out sooner. And the doctor, he accommodated that. By the time the birth came around, we had already had the autopsy report back. It took took about three or four months, so a lot better than the year that they had told us initially. Um, And we knew that it likely wasn't going to happen again. Like it was just, it was a freak thing. And we were, you know, at the best possible hospital and we had the best possible team. Yeah, I opted for the cesarean. So we went in that morning. It was a very stressful morning because it's a, it's, it's a high tech hospital and it's a high risk hospital. And I was having an elective cesarean. I did get bumped. So my initial cesarean was supposed to happen at 10 and mine didn't happen until six. So it was a long, it was a long day at the hospital, but um, they wheeled me into the, into the room and they put the, the spinal in. And then they, they cut her out of me, my subsequent daughter. And at first she didn't cry. I know this now, but back then I, d- I didn't know that sometimes when babies are born by cesarean, they don't always cry right away. So she didn't cry and it felt like the longest couple minutes of my life. And then she started crying and I knew, okay, you know, I think she's going to be okay now. She is an amazing, almost six-year-old. This experience has led you to want to help other people. Is that why you became a doula? And what exactly is a doula? So a doula is a support person for the birthing person and their and their partner and their family. They well, we provide physical, emotional, and educational support. And we're different from a midwife in that we don't do anything medical. So they handle all the cervical checks, all the blood pressure checks, all of that stuff. And we're just there to provide support in whatever way we're needed. So that's throughout the pregnancy, during the birth, and then also after birth for usually about six weeks. And uh, yeah, my experience with Autumn and then with my subsequent pregnancy did definitely propel me into supporting other families. So I became a doula with a focus um, really on loss and on subsequent pregnancies, because it's a, like I said before, it's a whole different ballgame when you're, when you're subsequently pregnant and it's hard to understand unless you've, you've been through it. You could definitely identify with people that are going through something similar and they must appreciate having you to relate to them. Absolutely. And I, I find it really fulfilling as well to be able to support people going through some of the hardest times in their life in a way that I can really relate to. Yeah. There's got to be something gratifying about that. Yeah, there is. I'm, I'm very lucky to have met the people that I have. What's your motivation for wanting to get this story out there for people to hear it? I think it's just another way to honor Autumn. I think it just comes down to that. I mean, I've, I support other, 
other people going through loss and through subsequent pregnancies to honor her. I was a peer counselor for a loss group for a little while until I got pregnant again. And that was, again, a way to honor her. Because she's not here, it's a way that I can kind of keep her alive and to keep her her memory alive. You have mentioned to me that if anyone wants to contact you, they can do that. And we'll have your email on the website in the show notes for this episode. And they can visit your website, which is ashleyharrison.net. And they can get in touch with you if they want to. Yes, absolutely. All right. Well, Ashley, I'm so sorry about Autumn. Thanks for sharing your story. Thank you very much, Scott. October is Pregnancy and Infant Loss Awareness Month. By telling her story here, Ashley wants to help raise awareness and love for anyone who's lost a child to stillbirth, miscarriage, SIDS, or any other cause at any point during pregnancy or infancy. And now, like we often do at the end of each episode, a couple of things I wanted to let you know about. First, I just released a new raw audio episode. If you're new to the show, raw audio is a whole other series of episodes. Currently, there are 27 episodes, all available to binge. With each one, you'll hear a 911 call that was made and the story about what happened. All of those episodes are available to anyone who signs up to support the podcast for $5 a month at whatwasthatlike.com support. And you also get all the new What Was That Like episodes ad-free. In Raw Audio 27, you'll hear about a woman who's followed home by her ex-boyfriend. Hurry, please. They're arguing very loudly. He has a gun. The police are on the way. I'm talking to you as they are en route, okay? So you don't need to be yelling at me. Police confront a man who's holding a machete. And he was just sitting there smoking, so we didn't think much of it. But my mom's saying, she's like, I try to go outside to like lock the gate with the lock, but he's sitting there and she's like, and he has a machete. And a young man has what feels like a therapy session with the 911 dispatcher. Is there any reason that you were so angry at your mother and your sister? Uh, I don't know. I, uh, I wasn't, it's weird. I wasn't even really angry with them. It just kind of happened. I've been kind of uh, planning on uh, killing for a while now. The, the two of them or just anybody? Pretty much anybody. You can get all 27 episodes immediately by becoming a supporter of the show at whatwasthatlike.com support. And I wanted to follow up on the listener story in a recent episode. If you recall, episode 116 from back in September was about two New York City 9-11 stories. And the listener story at the end of that episode was from a man who thought his father had died, but through a DNA test discovered that a different man was actually his biological father, and he was still alive. His father's name is Leroy, 
and so far Leroy does not want to make contact with his son. And after that episode went live, there were some podcast listeners who responded to that story. One was Nikki. This is the message she sent me. And that's all? Scott, we need to hear more from Leroy's son. Ancestry DNA and 23andMe are stirring families up like crazy, right? Nonetheless, I really hope Leroy decides to get to know and enjoy his son. Life is short. Well, the son, whose voice you heard in the listener story, is Patrick Jones. I passed that message on to him, and he said that he too hopes that Leroy decides to have some communication with him at some point. And if that happens, Patrick will let me know and we'll give you an update here. And incidentally, there's a chance you may have heard or seen Patrick. He's an actor and a producer and a podcast host. His podcast is called Why I'll Never Make It. And in that show, he talks with other actors about the setbacks and struggles of being in the performing arts. If you want to see some of his performances, Patrick's website is pojones.com. There's a clip on there where he was in the TV show Blue Bloods and he had a scene with Tom Selleck. I'll have those links in the show notes. And now we have this week's listener story, which is how we end every episode. If you have a story that you can tell in about five minutes, record it on your phone and send it to me at scott at whatwasthatlike.com. This week, we're hearing from Molly. Stay safe, and I'll see you in two weeks. Hi, Scott. I'd love an opportunity to tell you about my pregnancy in 2018. It was our first wedding anniversary when my husband and I found out that we were pregnant and we were thrilled. Unfortunately, our excitement didn't last. At our 18-week anatomy scan, we learned that we were having a boy and that something was wrong. Our baby was measuring small, like way too small. At 21 weeks, I developed a potentially life-threatening maternal complication. And so, in order to continue the pregnancy, I would have to remain hospitalized until delivery. A few days into my hospitalization, a resident doctor walked into my room with the paperwork necessary to obtain an abortion. She explained to me that in our state, there was a 24-hour waiting period between filing this paperwork and obtaining the abortion. And due to the nature of my condition, I could go from stable to unstable very quickly. And my doctor didn't want there to be any red tape delaying my treatment. So it was best to have this paperwork on hand in the event that we needed it. I, of course, did not want an abortion. I wanted a baby. But I also knew that it was important for my doctor to practice medicine within the confines of the law. So I begrudgingly and in tears signed the paperwork. The resident then told me that she was also required by law to show me a booklet meant to educate me on normal fetal development. Of course, the baby in my body was not developing normally. She very mercifully held the booklet out in front of me, flipped through it as quickly as you would one of those 
animated flipbooks, said, there, I showed it to you, threw the booklet in the trash, and walked out of the room. One morning, about five weeks into my hospitalization, I was taken from my room to an ultrasound, which I had been doing bi-weekly throughout my hospitalization. This ultrasound was different in that in the middle of it, the ultrasound tech put down her wand and said, I'm going to go call your doctor. I'll be right back. And I knew that this couldn't be good. I still had no idea what was going on when less than an hour later, the door to my hospital room opened and my husband walked in. My husband was in his first year of an internal medicine residency at a hospital across town. So I hardly saw him at all, nonetheless, at 9 a.m. on a weekday. Just a few minutes later, the door opened again, and in walked a pack of about 10 people, many of whom I had never seen before, but one of whom was my MFM, my maternal fetal medicine doctor. She told us that our baby had developed an additional complication in utero. And this complication was exceedingly dangerous for the mother, for the pregnant person. And it was no longer reasonable to continue the pregnancy. It was time for the pregnancy to end. A man from the group then introduced himself to us as the hospital's neonatologist. He explained that because our son was so growth-restricted that he was so small, they didn't have instruments small enough to perform the procedures on him that would be necessary in order to save his life. They didn't have breathing tubes small enough for his windpipe, and they didn't have IVs small enough for his blood vessels. To try and shove a tube down his throat that was too big for his throat would be akin to torture. And due to this new complication, his chances of survival were very slim, even in the best of circumstances. And with him being so small, he stood no chance. He would not and could not resuscitate the baby. The NICU team then left the room, and we were left to absorb the information that all hope for our son was lost. My MFM then explained to us that my baby was likely too weak to survive labor. So in order to avoid a quote-unquote abortion, she would need to deliver the baby via cesarean. That way, she could pull the baby out alive. After the baby came out alive, they would give the baby comfort care and allow the baby to die on the outside, all while I was being sewn up on the operating table. This plan was appalling to me. It was incredibly invasive and unnecessarily traumatic for both me and my son. But I thought I had no choice. I was 26 weeks pregnant 
in a state where at the time my choices ended a few weeks earlier. Now it's much, much earlier. So I took a shower and washed with the special soap intended to disinfect my belly before a planned cesarean. But as I stepped out of the shower, I decided that there was no way that this was how it was going to go down. I wanted to be induced. Well, obviously, what I wanted was a healthy baby and a healthy pregnancy. But given my circumstances, I wanted to be induced and to deliver my baby vaginally. Even if that meant he came out dead, even if that was against the law, even if it meant putting my very wonderful MFM's medical license at risk, I wanted my son to have as peaceful of a death as possible. I wanted him to be warm and to hear my beating heart and to be held inside of me as his little life slipped away. He was my son and I was his mother. And if this was my one and only chance to protect him, so be it. I told my OB that I refused the cesarean. She agreed that the cesarean was not medically necessary and that ultimately the outcome for my son would be the same. Many hours of brainstorming, pleading, and phone calls followed, all from my hospital bed. Eventually, the hospital agreed that if my case was reviewed by another MFM from a separate practice, and I was interviewed by another doctor, and the doctors agreed, I could be permitted the induction. 14 hours after that morning's ultrasound, the induction began. And I quickly had to change my mindset from fighting with the bureaucracy to preparing myself mentally and emotionally to do what I was about to do. And I just prayed and prayed and prayed that I would be brave enough to do it. I labored for 26 hours and he came out dead. He was so incredible to look at, and I just was overwhelmed with this duality of meeting my baby for the first time. He was finally here, but he was also gone. I kept his body in my hospital room with me for two nights. And on the third day, when the funeral director came to pick him up, I had to hand him over to him, and it was honestly one of the most painful experiences of my life. Much of what happened to me and to my son was nobody's fault. God's will is a mystery, and Mother Nature can be cruel. But it was made so much worse by the politics that surround pregnancy. My son's name was Alex. He was so wanted and so loved. Being his mother is one of the greatest honors of my life, and I will mourn him until the day I die. <laughs>